0: Emmett Smith, a name synonymous with the Dallas Cowboys.
1: I played for the organization that I always wanted to play for, in the sport that I absolutely love.
0: The NFL's all-time leading rusher says nothing could keep him from football. Why would your dad not want you to play football? He knew
1: how physically demanding the sport really was on the body.
0: And recalls the moment he gained the acceptance he'd always wanted. You can even see now talking to you, it- touches you. Yeah, dude. it does. Smith remembers the most heart-wrenching day of
1: his career. It broke my heart so much I cried for almost 30 minutes sitting in my
0: locker. And an unforgettable memory with his football idol when you really
1: got injured. All of a sudden Walter Payton shows up right over my head whispering in my ear, you're going to be okay.
0: The hall of famer now runs multiple companies and credits his success for having a plan after football. In my mind, I already say it to myself: football is going to end at some point. We sat down with Smith in North Dallas, just blocks from Emmett Smith Enterprises. All that's coming up next, right here on the In Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. I wanted to uh, start by, uh, you know, talking business. Uh, obviously, that's where. Uh, your, your heads at now, and that that's what's consuming a, a large majority of your time. But I want to take you back to when you were uh, really young. You go to your Pop Warner coach's house, and you see uh, blueprints yes. on the table. Yes. How did that impact you?
1: Uh, I think it has impacted me in a way that uh, um, that has opened my mind truly. And this is what he did for me. I mean, he opened my mind to truly what life could be like without football. And uh, so I started thinking about, OK, in my mind, I already said it to myself, football is going to end at some point. All I wanted to go on and do the things that I've been able to do thus far uh, through my sport. And, uh, and I wanted to transition that into something bigger. Uh, not knowing what bigger was until I met Staubach. Not knowing what bigger was until I met Irvin Johnson not knowing what bigger was till I met other former athletes who had transitioned into Michael Jordan and others who was transitioned over into the world of entrepreneurship as well as free enterprise uh... when I saw that then I understood what I, that I had the capabilities of doing the same thing.
0: And you had some businesses during your playing career yes. but it's really taken off uh, yeah. po- post career. I-, I wonder how does your enthusiasm uh, for business compared to the ent- enthusiasm that you had for playing football.
1: You know, um, I would say they probably won in the same uh, really in the context of uh, excitement, uh, the thrill of, of the chase and uh, and the agony of defeat. <laughs> so it's never good to lose an opportunity and it's never good to disappoint someone that you're working with either. So, Uh, Just like in football, it is you letting down the fans. And not only letting down the fans, but letting down your teammates and your organization. In business, you're hurting families. You're hurting other businesses. So it's a lot more real. (laughs) You know, fans, on the other hand, yeah, their feelings get hurt. But in business, livelihoods can change for the better or for the worse. So it's a little different. But they both kind of kind of parallel each other.
0: You mentioned uh, Roger Staubach, uh, you know, you also mentioned Irvin Johnson or, or Magic and he's obviously the most notable example of uh, business success at least you know publicly among right. professional athletes but Staubach, I mean created a massive business empire mm-hmm. for himself, sold it uh, not too long ago for hundreds of millions mm-hmm. of dollars, former Cowboys uh, quarterback. Explain why you reached out to him early on in your career. As you grow up, you encounter people that give you
1: tad bits of wisdom along the way. And along the way, I've learned, <clears throat> and this came when I, when, I, when I was a professional athlete through a marketing guy, Warner Scott at the time, he said, always surround yourself with people who are smarter than you, but most importantly, you, you better learn from them along the way. And so learning from others along the way and having a connection with Roger Starbuck, and having a connection with the Irvin Johnson, but most importantly, having a guy that I was working for, like a Jerry Jones, who, were a, who was able to allow me to sit down in his office and listen at some of his business conversation Conversations uh, was was paramount for me, and um, you know, having this opportunity to have a dialogue with Roger and understand what he did actually just said to me, um, yes, I can do it. The question becomes not how you go about. It. Well, it, it's a how and a when. How will you go about doing it, and when you do it. Investing in yourself after football is more critical than investing in others while you're playing football.
0: I believe you both interned and actually did work for uh, Roger. What, what did you learn from him?
1: Well, I learned that uh, uh, some people talk about culture. Uh, some people live culture. Roger Staubach is a person that lives culture. Um, How so? Uh, his organization uh, personifies... Um, greatness, um, and ethical, um, caring, sharing. Um, that's, that's just the way everybody operated within that organization. Um, now granted, there are some that probably didn't do everything that the Roger Starbuck way, because everybody wants to put their thumbprints on certain things, and they, and they may have the right to do that. Uh, but, but he
0: was doing it right at the top, and he you saw at the top, it trickle down.
1: Yeah, at the top, he got it right, and it trickled his way down, and that's why he was so respected in the in the marketplace,
0: and uh, and did such a great job. So you've obviously had the chance to start several companies. Mm-hmm. Um, tell about you know the the cliff notes of uh, each of your. Uh, companies. Okay, East Memphis
1: Legacy is a full service real estate development company, and we truly focus on on uh, retail, multifamily, and hospitality. Uh, we We go find a location in let's just say a trade area that we're willing to work in, and that may have some services there but may need some additional services. We occupy some land, then we'll come in and get it obviously entitled. Uh, we'll take it through this entire process, and then we'll start to do development once we have tenants lined up for the property. That's the development business. And we'll, we'll, we'll collect a fee, then we'll collect a promote on the backside uh, with other people money. Other people money, OPA, <laughs> <laughs> OPM. Um oh, Or what they say, oh, are you down with O-P-P? This is O-P-M, other people money. <laughs> and so that's the d- development business. Then um, I have E. Smith Realty Partners, which is a servicing business. It's very similar to the Staubach Company. We represent tenants across the country. And then there's E.J. Smith Construction. We are general contractors in the sense of the word. We focus on uh, concrete placement, place and finish work. Uh, We're in a space of uh, commercial construction as well as uh, civil construction. And then I have Prova. I want to change the world of authentication. Uh, I honestly believe that there are folks out there that are spending significant capital on what they perceive to be real sports memorabilia merchandise. And the tools that they currently have right now, to me, are way outdated. I think technology has caught it to the point where we're able to put smart tags on items and add statistical data, add at uh, video data, including the point of when the item itself was authenticated and matter of fact, autographed, if you
0: will. Wow. And so and you like you first hand experience yes, with I do. that understanding yes, I do. the importance of actually yes, you know having the autographs. Yeah. Oh without real, a doubt. Not having
1: without, without a doubt. If someone's gonna go merging. out. And, exactly. Someone's gonna go out and pay pay um, matter of fact, <laughs> I saw something on Facebook and they were talking about my autograph. And it was on a helmet. And I looked at the autograph, it's like my son drew it. <laughs> <laughs> so and I was like, this is not my signature. Right. And, and so I had to reply back to it like, this is not my signature. Please don't buy it. But
0: How much of a challenge is access to capital?
1: You know, when you don't have a true track record, access to capital is extremely uh, tough because you haven't proven yourself,
0: if you will, in the, right. in the marketplace. Um, and even the wealthy man like yourself, when you get into tens of millions of dollars, like money can only go so far. And you want to, as you said, OPM, right? Other people's OPM. money. Is I, that's one thing
1: I've learned over the, right. over the last 23 years, right. 24 years, if you will. OPM right. people use OPM money right and at the end of the day whether it's a real estate transaction or you go talk to a venture capitalist that believes in the Prova platform and what it's all about and the opportunity that lies there if the space is big enough for them and they trust who you are and the team that you actually have uh, that's working that can execute against that space then people invest in you uh, but it's always a challenge uh, sometimes you go to, and what I found is you go to people, they say, well, um, you're thinking too small. Then you go to others, they say, you're thinking too big. Yeah. So you, you got to find the right one that understands that, that you know your space very well. You're focused, you're committed, and you can execute against your game plan and, and bring this opportunity to the market, whether it's in real estate or whether it's in technology. Either way it goes, it's the same philosophy.
0: What do you think you personally have the most room for growth in when it comes to your own just professional development business-wise? Oh, I have so much room for growth, uh, whether it's in the areas of truly understanding
1: every aspect of my business. That's always been a goal. Uh, Just like I did in football, understanding when our quarterback should be checking out of a run play and going to a pass play, and perhaps what pass play he should be going to. And understanding when we should be checking out of a pass play and running the ball and what run play we should be running. So reading those kind of things and understanding our offenses, to me, is like understanding business from business 101 to, to the highest level of business. And, and then it becomes how you interact with people, how you make people feel when you're trying to work with them. And not only that, but when, you're, when you have a, a directive and you have to execute against... Uh, that directive and how well you execute against it. It becomes performance then.
0: I want to take you back to when you were growing up uh, y- Your father drove a bus for the city, right? Uh, your mom was a document clerk. You yeah. lived in the projects in Pensacola, Florida right. um, How aware were you of how little money your family had when you were growing up? I wasn't that aware at all to be no. honest with you
1: because How can you be aware of something when you've never been exposed to the other? Your experience in life is only limited to your knowledge base. And my knowledge base right there, I felt like I had the world. I was comfortable with that. And then Charlie Egger blew that smoke, blew it wide open. <laughs> uh, and, and by doing such, it really elevated my mind to the possibilities. And that being your, your coach. My coach, when I was 12 years old. Uh, when I stayed over his house, and their house was 3,600 square feet, and I thought it was a pretty good big house at that time. I got a chance to see how others lived and, uh, and how we lived. There was nothing wrong with the way we live outside of not knowing that there was something different. Uh, but that changed. That changed. My mom and dad and, was able to move us out, and uh, my grandfather was very instrumental in helping us do such, and uh, we moved into our own home. So, um, But seeing that and realizing that that, too, is attainable, Um, gave me fuel to want to go and do good. And I think that's the problem with some of our kids right now. They're limited in their thinking because they're not exposed to really what the possibilities are. Um, I often say that people in the urban neighborhoods, they're not looking for a handout. They're looking for a hand up. They want somebody to give them an opportunity so they can go and prove themselves. And if they do that, they're willing to earn it. They're willing to to go out there and fight and and do what they need to do to earn the right to 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 earn that opportunity. But if you're telling them no, you can't. You only can go so far. Frustration sets in.
0: You lived in a two-bedroom home with your parents, your three brothers, your two sisters. I'd imagine actually it was a, a three-bedroom home. Three-bedroom. My sister home. had okay. her own room, and then. My three brothers and I, we all slept in the same room. <laughs> <laughs> that was nice. Uh, what do you think, though, having gone through the kind of tough times growing up, uh, taught you about fiscal responsibility?
1: You know, um, the one thing that uh, that we didn't really talk about was financial literacy uh, at that time, because we had so little. Uh, but my grandfather always told me to save my money. But he only was limited in his capacity because the dollars that I saw was significant capital but in this world that we call um, the financial world um, you have to have a minimum of fifty thousand dollars to invest in anything just about and so not having the ability to sit around the room and and have dialogue about how you save money what you invest in and all those kind of things was something that was not really available in my household I did not get exposed to that until I became a Dallas Cowboy and I got my first check. Wow. Then I'm sitting here talking to my financial advisors and they're talking to me about a balanced asset allocation. What the heck that really means? Well, that means we're gonna put some of your money in bonds, we're gonna put some of your money in stocks, and we're gonna do this. We're gonna put some of your money in alternative investments. What the heck is an alternative investment? Okay, it's a little bit more riskier than stocks and bonds. Okay, real estate, picture capital kind of stuff, et cetera, et cetera. That's really what the trade meant. And understanding what that situation was all about helped me understand truly uh, that it's not all about how hard you work sometimes, it's about how smart you work. And, and at the end of the day, your money can truly work as
0: hard as you can and work even smarter than you can in some cases. Why did you used to turn uh, your shirt and pants inside out? When you play? <laughs> because my mom's, we used to play football after we get out of school,
1: and I used to come home, my clothes dirty. And my mom said, I better not ever do that again. So I figured I would get smart, turn the jeans, pants, inside out, (laughs) turn the clothes inside out, then turn them inside out before I went back home, and everything looked like it was pretty normal. You ever get caught? (laughs) I'm sure she knew knew exactly what was happening. (laughs) I mean, we couldn't afford to have replacement stuff, and I'm out here damaging the items. (laughs) Why would your dad not want you to play football? Uh, I think my father didn't want me to play football because he knew how – physically demanding the sport really was on the body. My father sustained uh, a knee injury. And uh, at the time, I mean, before he sustained his knee injury, I was told, and people oftentimes tell me this, he was the best running back in the city of Pensacola. And so, uh, and to this day, that same knee, which he just had replaced, had forward knee replacement surgery about, a, about two months ago in June, uh, had, was bothering him and so now he has a new knee, and he's moving on uh, with his life now. But I think that experience that he had, he didn't want none of his kids to go through it. And so, uh, fortunately, um, my mom wanted us to have a complete experience. How can you deter somebody from their passion? Right. And so, uh,
0: at the end of the day, uh, it worked out. Well, it's surprising because it's usually the other way around. It's usually the mom saying, yeah. "No, no, no, we don't want." My mom know, loved. Foo- foo- my mom to...
1: loved football more than I did. My mom was a football fanatic. She loved the sport of football, and and my mom probably believed that her son could do anything in football.
0: Really? Yes. So uh, when you're you and your dad are awaiting your you know, certain uh, election into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does he say to you in a private moment? Uh,
1: in a private moment, my father tells me, he says, son, you do, you're, you're doing the things that I wanted to do. He said, you're living my dream. And, and that's the, really one of the first times that he truly opened up like that. And it was kind of cool to see, but it was, it was heartfelt because uh, I knew that he had played the sport. And it had to be hard on him to watch uh, his son go out and become that individual that he really wanted to become. Um, and so he probably looked back over his life. I can only imagine he probably looking over his life, thinking about what it, what his life could have been. I'm just hoping that, hoping that he's proud that I was able to pick up the mantle uh, where he left off at and carried uh, further and 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 do the things and and I think. The Hall of Fame
0: solidified that for him. Well, and you spoke about that conversation a little in your, you know, Hall of Fame acceptance uh, speech, but, you know, it got to you then. and You can even see now talking to you, it touches you. Yeah, it what, does. What is it about that because conversation? The, the, because the human spirit itself is such a powerful thing,
1: and uh, I am the descendant of my father. My father was given a considerable amount of talent, and so was I. And, uh, and I'm just thankful that I didn't squander it, and, um, and was able to,
0: to maximize it to it, its fullest. And I'm still trying to maximize it to this day. How true is it that when uh, you were growing up and playing sports that your mom would sometimes have to bring your birth certificate because people <laughs> wouldn't believe that you were the same age as their kids? Yeah,
1: that's very true. Because I was a pretty thick, uh, strong, strong kid. Um, and, and, yes, I was a little bit bigger than, than, than most. Uh, and I was well-coordinated. I was extremely coordinated. I mean, you're talking about somebody that can throw a football. I probably could have got into the, uh, the punt, kick, and pass, the pass, kick, and punt contest and done very well because um, I could throw a football at a young age, 45, 50 yards. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I could just sling it. And I could run. I could catch, I could catch with one hand, I knew how to tackle, uh, I was real aggressive. I was a real aggressive football player
0: and uh, and I knew what to do with the football once I got it in my hand. And uh, I mean it wasn't just limited to football no. uh, either because I, I think you were leading the county in scoring in basketball in your 8th <laughs> grade year, yet you end up stopping playing right. to run track. Yeah. Because it could help you better in football, is that Yeah, right? most
1: definitely. Uh, um, I mean, I was, like you said, I, I did lead the county in, um, in basketball. I was pretty decent. I yeah. really was. I was pretty decent. Of course, I, was, I could jump out the roof. I could almost dunk a, football, a basketball in the eighth grade. Well, and so, but once I got to high and school. And you weren't even 5'10". Yeah, I was about 5'9 and a half. In the eighth grade, I remember being measured at 5'9 and a half in the eighth grade. Wow. And I haven't grown since. <laughs> right, I was just say. <laughs> so I grew early and stopped. Yeah. Everybody else kept growing. And so, um, but I remember um, uh, when I got to high school, I was going to go out for basketball. And, um, and Coach Norm Ross told me, he said, Listen, son, I've seen you play football. He said, You probably have a better chance of going places in football than, than basketball. He said, because I made the varsity squad. He said, now, you, you, you made the squad, but I'm not going to play you that much because I don't want you to get hurt on my watch. He said, so I recommend you go on the track, work with your speed, do the things that are complementary to football.
0: The Cowboys scout that was instrumental in uh, drafting you wrote in his report that you would someday make Cowboys fans forget about The Hall of Famer uh, Tony Dorsett, who used to run for them, and then you know draft day comes, and you're you know expected to go very high. Tell about what happens, and then the call you get from the coach Jimmy Johnson.
1: Well, you know every player comes out, and there's these experts that have their mock drafts, and and I was projected to go in the top ten. And so looking at the top 10 at that time, um, I thought I had a chance to go to Tampa Bay, which was obviously only two and a half or an hour and a half from Gainesville, which made sense to me. I thought I had a chance. If I didn't go there, I thought I would have a chance to go to Seattle and play out in Seattle. And so when the top five went by and Tampa Bay passed me over, then Seattle passed me over, uh, then the top 10 went by, I did not know what was going to happen. I didn't know, I started to get very nervous because I I wanted to go in the top 10. Then I fell back um, to the 17th pick. And by that time, the Cowboys uh, made a a trade and uh, and I got a call from Jimmy uh, saying, we're gonna gonna draft you. And how would you like to wear a star on your helmet? And it was like a dream come true for me. because I had loved the Cowboys when I was seven years old, and I still love them to this day. So no offense to Arizona, but being out there, the Bidwells, they always treated me with respect. They took care of me. I loved them, and still do to this day. Respect them wholeheartedly. Uh, But coming back in Texas Stadium and playing as an Arizona Cardinal versus playing as a Dallas Cowboy absolutely broke my heart. It shattered it. And I knew right Ooh, then and there. And why did that affect you so much? Because for 13 years, I had got dressed in the home locker room. For 13 years, I had played on Thanksgiving Day. For 13 years, I played for the organization that I always wanted to play for in a sport that I absolutely loved, a sport that I believe chose me, and a sport that, to me, is everything that any person wants to learn about life must play, because football is one of those life sports. And that day, getting dressed in the visitor's locker room, hardly ever been in the visitor's locker room in 13 years. Right. I'm walking into the visitor's locker room, and I'm sitting at my locker, and I'm thinking that my team is on the other, on the other side of the wall. And I could not get over that. It broke my heart so much, I cried for almost 30 minutes sitting in my locker while all my other Cardinal teammates was walking around looking at me like, wow. I cried like a baby. And went on the field and got hurt and came back in and it was like, mm, this just didn't work out well. Yeah. <laughs> and so the only thing I could think of was honoring out my commitment, because my mom and, and and many coaches finish what you start, and and that's what I wanted to do for the Cardinals. I wanted to finish what I started with the Arizona Cardinals. Uh, I wanted to honor out my contract, which I did. And what I'm what I'm thankful of is I gave them everything I had left. And uh, and what I'm proud of the fact is I ended my my last football season the same way I started it. 930-some-odd yards, <laughs> to the number.
0: <laughs> how, how bitter were you that the Cowboys released you before that? I wasn't bitter at all. You weren't? <clears throat> no, because
1: I knew I, I, I knew I wanted to continue to play. I felt like I still had something to prove. Um, I wasn't bitter that the fact that I knew Jerry had to make a tough decision. They wanted to go younger with Troy Hambrick, who was stronger, faster, bigger. Um, back than I was, and, and I understood it. It was just business at that time. Yeah. And so um, they had to
0: make a business decision. I wanted to take you to uh, the, the Super Bowls, uh, obviously you have a, a few of those rings. Uh, your first Super Bowl though, um, you apparently got more exhausted in the pre-game yes. warm-ups than you have in any other game period, yes, yes. Uh, why? Uh, I be- and I, and I should say, you got more exhaustion in the pregame warmups than you have actually gotten exhausted in any actual game. In any actual right.
1: game, you're, you're absolutely correct. And, and, and I think it was all because of the anxiety and the build-up of playing in your very first Super Bowl, um, and the focus of wanting to do your best in that particular game and not being that guy to make the mistake that cost your team. The victory. You stepped on that football field, you step out there knowing that in the next three to four hours, my life will be changed forever. One way or the other. Either I'm going to be on the winning side and I'm going to be on the losing side. I don't want to be on the losing side. And so that anxiety itself was enough to wear me out before the game actually got started.
0: There was a perceived Sports Illustrated Super Bowl cover jinx. Um, yeah. Is it true that you had your agent <laughs> actually reach out to Sports Illustrated to try and get you off yes. the cover? Yes. Yes. Well, when we played Buffalo in, in,
1: uh down in Atlanta, um, Super Bowl Twenty Eight. Super Bowl Twenty Eight. I'll never forget this. This was on a Wednesday night. <clears throat> My agent Warner Scott and Larry Lundy and I are riding around the in a limousine and in Atlanta going to various parties. Same night I probably met Michael Jordan and and Magic. And um, Larry got in the car and said, big dog, we got some good news for you. I'm like, really? What's the good news? I'm thinking like somebody wants me to endorse their product. And so I'm like getting all excited. Guess who got got the Sports Illustrated cover this week? I'm like, who? They're like, you. I said, oh, no. (laughs) I said, have y'all heard about the Sports Illustrated jinx? I mean, like, that is a jinx. Y'all going to put me on a Sports Illustrated cover before the Super Bowl? I'm like, that's crazy. Y'all got to call him and get me off the cover. Y'all got to say, it's too late now. Too late. And then Warner leaned over here, leaned over and said this to me. He said, dog, I suggest you change your attitude. I looked him square dead in the eye. I said, you know what? You're right. I said, I don't care nothing about no jinx. I'm going to go out here, and I'm going to do my thing, regardless.
0: Uh, so Super Bowl 28, uh, Bills are ahead of the Cowboys, 13-6. to six. Uh, It's halftime, and your Hall of Fame wide receiver, Michael Irvin, storms in. And w- what does he scream at halftime? Man, I don't Michael's screaming all the time, so it's kind of hard to remember what exactly Michael was saying. But,
1: but I do know this much. We're coming, off, we're coming off the field, and there's a somber moment. Michael saying, "We got to get him back. We got to get him in the second half for sure." And um, and Jimmy and North, then they come at me. They come to me two different times. And Jimmy says, "We're gonna run the football the second half." Then North comes to tell me, says, get ready because we're gonna run the football the second half." And and my officer, I can see my office alignment getting geeked up. Yeah, yeah, because they wanted to run the rock. <laughs> So the second half, we come out, the Bills made the fatal mistake. They turned the football over on their first possession. And what made it worse, James Washington picked it up and ran it back for a touchdown to (laughs) tie the score up. Then they kicked off, so our defense is all jacked up. They go one, two, three, and out and punt the ball to us. We ran the same play six straight times, and then we threw a pass in the flat that was incomplete. (laughs) Then we ran on the eighth play of that drive, ran power right. I break a tackle, and I go for 20 yards for a touchdown. Game over. The Bills don't know what hit them. You can see the life just walk, just leave. And you see it in the highlight tape on the sideline when their coach is cussing them out left and right from sun up to sun down. You got to strike that son of a, just going off on them. I mean, and they're sitting around like, what just happened? And we just took control of the game. The,
0: 90, the, the 93 uh, season finale, uh, Cowboys and Giants, NFC East titles on the line, the you know, w- winner of that game gets home field advantage of right. the playoffs. Take me to that defining moment of your career. You know, I think every player has a defining moment in their career. Um,
1: and that right there was the one for me uh, because there was so much at stake. That also was the year that I missed the first two games of the season. And, and you still
0: win the rushing title. Yeah,
1: yeah. We, as Rich Dow Ripper used to tell me, he's, it's not where you start, it's where you finish. And every week he used to just say, I used to look at the stats and say, man, I'm behind by 200 yards. He said, just keep chip, 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 chipping away. He would say that every week, just keep chip, chip, chipping away. Then finally, in, in, in week 17, we play in New York, in New York, and everything is on the line. Uh, we got to win this game to secure home field advantage, and not only that, but win the NFC East side right. And we're playing in New York on the road, cold day. And uh, we're having a, a good start. We're on a roll. I take a handoff, an inside trap play, break it out to the right side, giant side, and I'm gone. It's about, about 40 yards later, 50 yards later, Greg Jackson, whom I played against in college at LSU, <clears throat> comes up to me on the inside, rides me to the ground, hit the ground funny, uh, clavicle pops out of my AC area. And so now I have an AC separation, not knowing what it was, but I knew it, was, it, was, it felt pretty bad. And I come off the field, they do the analysis, they take me to the locker room, analyze my shoulder, grade, they call it a grade two separation. Probably was grade three. Uh, because I could bounce my clavicle up and down with my hand. It sounds fun. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't fun at all. And so mentally, uh, I know it's at stake. And when you see the doctors and staff go over to a corner and huddle up in the corner and have a private conversation while you're laying there, you know something's not right. Yeah. <laughs> so but uh Kevin Kevin O'Neill comes back and and, uh, he says, "Um, we need you in this game. And I'm like, I know. They gave me some some stuff for the pain. Uh, I think it may have been a Viking at the time. They cut, they put two knee pads together, cut a hole, made a donut out of of it, laid it on my shoulder, strapped it to my shoulder to give me a little extra padding under my shoulder pads. And I trust that that was all I could do. I wasn't going to damage it any further. And um, North said, uh, we're going to try to use you as a decoy. I'm like, OK. Michael said, I need you to stay in the game. Just act like you're going to run the football so they can just line up. MICHAEL IRVING. IRVING. And so went back there thinking that I'm going to be a decoy for for a whole half. Something changed. (laughs) The Giants started coming back. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the game get very interesting <laughs> and they start calling my number and, uh, and I'm like saying okay here we go and the first time I hit the ground I can hear my, hear my chest just cracking sound like knuckles popping um, pain is shooting radiating and I'm just saying oh my gosh but I can't come out I can't come out I gotta stay in the game, I gotta stay in the game for the whole third and fourth quarter, including the overtime. And I just kept running, just kept running, just kept running. And and that's all I could ever think about. Everything got quiet. I was in my own zone. I was in my own happy place, if you will. Uh, And that's how I was able to get through the game. Not only that, but my teammates was encouraging me. And, uh, And I kept coming back to the huddle, Tears running out of my eyes. Troy looking at me, saying, "You all right?" Yeah. Just call the play. Just call the play. And it was a run play. <laughs> and I,
0: I'm like, okay. And he just kept saying, "He hanging there, man. Hanging there." To to what extent on the team's flight home? You were playing in New York. Flight oh. back to Dallas. Did the team actually consider stopping in a random city um, to get you to the hospital sooner?
1: Yeah, uh, because after the game, I'm I'm so thankful that we won the game. Uh, I don't even recall seeing the kick, the field goal, go between the uprights because I was in so much pain. So I go in and get on the bus, and then on the ride, on the plane ride back, the pain was so intense because of the air altitude and everything else. I was trying to knock my shoulder out of place up against a wall because it was hurting so bad. And they came, they held me down. I think the doc may have given me a shot, and I went back out. Then I woke up again, pow! Banging it up against the window, guy, screaming, it was hurting. And Kevin O'Neill said, hey man, we may have to land this plane in Memphis to get you to a hospital. I'm like, no, just get me back to Dallas. I said, if I'm gonna die, I wanna die in Dallas.
0: Tell about when you really got injured on the Bears turf. Uh, you lost all the feeling on your left side and you thought mm-hmm. your career over. I thought might my career over. was over.
1: Uh, I mean, injuries do come, and, um, and I never thought I would get injured faking like I had the football. <laughs> and so we had a play down on the goal line where I tried to act like I had the ball, and I was diving over the top, and I came down awkwardly on my shoulder, pinched pinch, maybe a nerve in my back, and uh, it didn't feel good. And, and I lost a feeling on, on, on the side, on my I want to say on my left side. And they carted me off, and and, I was, and all I could see was the moon. And so coming off the field and going in, into the stadium, underneath the stadium, and everybody's circling around you and talking, and you can't see them. But all you can do is move your eyes left and right. Can't move your head. And, and all of a sudden, Walter Payton shows up right over my head, whispering in my ear, you're going to be OK. You're going to be OK. Don't worry about it, you're gonna be okay. Kissing me on the forehead, talking to Rich, talking to everybody in there. I didn't even know he was in the stands at the time. And, uh, and so it, 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 it comforted me uh, for the moment uh, but my idol was standing right over me. It was a great thing to know that he was there. And, um, and so they whisked me off to the hospital and I recall hearing him saying to Rich, here's my number, if he needs anything, called me. Uh, just give me an update. And, and, and that was that. And so it was cool just to have him there. But moments like that are rare moments for uh, injuries will occur. But to be injured and to have one of your idols actually come down and see on you, check on you, was mm-hmm.
0: phenomenal. You first met Walter Payton at a 95 awards uh, ceremony, and he made a point of coming over and sitting next to you. What do you recall from what you guys talked about? We, we talked about everything under the sun. We talked about the game of
1: football, we talked about his career, we talked about his work ethic, we talked about his eating habits, we talked about his recovery habits, we talked about transitioning from the game, business and all those things. We talked about family, we talked about not losing yourself. We talked about all of those things. And uh, it seemed like a whole day, but it was probably a matter of an hour. <laughs> but having a conversation with someone that you look up to for so, looked up to for so long, and to have that insight from someone that is, was the ultimate or the consummate professional
0: it was cool. His nickname was Sweetness, and you actually had, had on your Sweet, Letterman jacket. I, I had jacket. Sweetness on my
1: Letterman jacket in, in high school. In high school, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you really
0: looked up to him growing up. What did he uh, ask you to do w- oh, with well, his son? you know, uh, during, during the time when he, he,
1: he got ill, I'd never, at that point in time in my life, I'd never seen a person with so much strength. Uh, to face his situation the way he did there he was a man that was actually dying encouraging me um, and and in return I mean basically I had to ask the question is there is anything I could do and uh, he said no he said I'm good he said i'm at peace with where I'm at he said but Every now and then, just reach out to my son, Jared, and make sure that he's okay. Stay in touch with him. And just be there for him if he needs you. And that was it.
0: And I was like, that's not a problem. I would do that. He died at 45 yeah. years old, and a few days after that, the Cowboys are playing the Vikings. Yeah. and. Uh, You said that game, that night, was unlike anything you've ever experienced Mm -hmm. before, including Mm -hmm. the three Super Bowl victories. Because what?
1: I felt his spirit that night, and I said, you know what? Tonight I want to dedicate this night to him. I want to go out, and I wanted it to be the best night I've ever had in my professional career. I wanted to go out and rush for over 275 yards and break his single-season rushing record. That's what I wanted to do. And, man, I was on a mission. I was on my way <laughs> until I broke my hand <laughs> in the uh, second quarter, And um, but uh, it, that night was full of emotions because I wanted it for him. I wanted to do it for him. I wanted to say, this night, this performance was dedicated
0: to him. And still—I mean, it still gets you a little emotional yeah, even. Yeah. Talking about yeah. to this day, mm-hmm. he he meant a yeah, lot. Yeah, I you. mean, yeah,
1: I mean, he did. I mean, he he was a he he was a a, a great man, and uh, and I just loved the way he handled himself on the football field, handled himself off the football field. Even some of the referees that I joke around with, they say you you, I remind them of him because I joke with them just the way he used to, and I didn't even know he used to joke with them. Yeah, but but that's you know that's the ultimate compliment when 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 someone says that you remind them of someone that you looked up to as a athlete that's that's kind of cool
0: booze drugs girls the you know the kind of the excesses of the cowboys of the 90s the stories have become that of legend mm-hmm. how hard was it to avoid getting caught up in all of that excess you know um I could point to a couple
1: of occasions where I learned very valuable lessons. One of those occasions happens in college when I got suspended with uh, some of my teammates for fighting. And the headlines read, Smith and, Smith and 11 others. That's all they read. So I learned there that lesson of being guilty by association and your name will make headlines. Another one occurred. Uh, um, in my career as a Dallas Cowboy, um, the night with James Washington. My rookie year here in Dallas, and um, obviously, I just got drafted probably two weeks prior to our first camp, or 10 days prior to our first camp. And uh, James Washington, um, uh, who actually had a vehicle at the time, a white Mercedes, um, he and I decided, a bunch of us decided to go to a nightclub and James and I didn't know, did not know the way, but he only knew one way that somebody told him. And so we, we ride down the street called Harry Hines, and Harry Hines is a street uh, where some nightwalkers hang out at. <laughs> and I didn't know this. <laughs> I didn't know the severity of it until we got pulled over by some Dallas cops. And um, they got out. Some of them had the, the, the guns drawn. Uh, they come and approaching the car and, and they shining the lights. And, and people don't, and the cops probably, they know what they're doing because they shine the light to the point where it's in your face where you can't see nothing anyway.
0: Yeah. So
1: if you're disoriented and moving around, I can see how they can put a cap in somebody, easy. Yeah. <laughs> but at the end of the day, uh, we put our hands up out the window and so forth. And, uh, you know, they asking for driving license and everything else, treating us like criminals. Like, we about to do something wrong, all because we're in a Mercedes-Benz. So we're driving while black, be honest with you. And these are black cops. <laughs> so it's not like these are white cops. These are black cops. <laughs> so uh, at the end of the day, uh, they, 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 they they tell us, guys, do y'all know what street y'all on? I'm like, man, I'm new to this city. How would I know this? Right. <laughs> and so he started to explain to us what street we are on. And, and I'm like, OK, cool. Uh, James uh, <laughs> James driving. We got out. Got to where they let us go. And right then and there I said I learned my second valuable lesson. what did you learn from it? I learned never to ride with anybody. <laughs> Drive yourself. <laughs> yeah, right. You can leave when you want to, you can go where you want <laughs> and everything else. <laughs> then I learned a valuable lesson one night hanging out in Dallas before we played the Giants one night. I hung out with a friend of mine. We hung out to about four o'clock, five o'clock in the morning. <laughs>
0: This is the, so the morning of a game now. No, no this is not the morning of okay. the game.
1: This is the Friday night ah, before we departed okay. to go to New York. I got it. Okay. So I get home about five. <laughs> we the plane departs at ten, so I get about two or three hours of sleep, right? And I'm wore out. Well, the next day we playing, and we jump on New York behind, and I'm having a good game. But I'm in a huddle and I'm gasping for air. I can't hardly breathe. My legs are just numb. I turned to, turn to Mike, I said, Mike, I can't feel my legs. <laughs> I can't feel my legs. And so after that game, New York comes back and we barely wins the game. On the ride back, I said right then, I said, you know what, I can't do this no more. I cannot do this no more. It's either the streets or it's my career. Yeah. So I had to make a decision. And I said, you know what, if I'm going to party, I'm only going to party, I'm going to party up to Thursday if I if I want to, but I'm shutting it down. Yeah, I'm not doing these things no more. Then I said, you know what, that's that. So you learn lessons along the way, and there are signs that you're going down the wrong path, <laughs> and you try to correct those things before they get too
0: bad. How out of control was it, though, as a team, the partying in the 90s? Uh, I wouldn't say. That depends
1: on your, your definition of out of control. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. Okay, by
0: normal people's standards. Well,
1: what, what you don't know what normal people are doing. Uh, you just don't know. I mean, you, they're just not caught. They're just not publicized the way it is. I mean.
0: Okay, what's, compared to what your life is now.
1: Oh, I'm married now. I got five, five kids now. I have deeper, deeper responsibilities. At the time, I was single. So to each their own, as long as you, I mean, you're a single man, and there are single people out there that enjoy being single. And so at the end of the day, I mean, you just have to learn how to do things in moderation. Uh, And and that's what I learned as well. So
0: uh, once and for all, what what was the White House?
1: I can't talk about the White House. It's not my place to talk about the White House. I mean, the White House is where George Bush was at, along with Bill Clinton, and, and so we visited the White House three times.
0: So this, this wasn't a place the Cowboys rented for the party. I don't know what you're talking about. You're, you're just, <laughs> to, to, to what extent do you think the like, excessiveness played a role in kind of the, the downfall of the team? You know what?
1: I think excessiveness uh, plays a role in everybody's career, in everybody's life, success, Sometimes make you think that you were invincible and that you could do almost anything. But the, the true strength of having success, success is being able to control it and not allow it to take control of you.
0: How concerned are you by the, the potential long-term side effects that having played for so long will have I, on you? I am concerned. I am very concerned. And
1: here's why. No man in the National Football League has cared for football more than I have, which means... I've been hit more times than anybody in the National Football League. No one has rushed for more yardage than I have, so that meant that I ran a long ways. But just the hits themselves, uh, when I think about guys like Tony Dorsett and Rayfield Wright and many others right now um, that are dealing with those head trauma issues, yes, it is a concern. And when I think about these guys, these guys are in the mid to late 50s, and so. 10 more years, talk to me. That's well, not that far away though. It's not that far away, but 10 more years, talk to me. Let's see how, you, how I'm doing then. And, um, and, and, and that to me uh, probably say a lot. But what I'm doing right now, I'm on the preventative side. I'm taking the initiative to, to establish a baseline and monitor myself probably every year or every two years if I have to, all according to what the doctor's request. And so far, I'm doing okay.
0: And you have gout, which is yeah. severe arthritis. Yes. How does that affect you? Uh, it only affects when
1: I have a flare. Um, my uric acid levels uh, were extremely high. Therefore, whenever I had a, I had a flare up and it attacked uh, some of my joints, uh, and it, it attacked my big toe and my right right point finger. Uh, but as long as I keep my uric acid levels in in check, I think I will be okay with gout. I can manage that piece.
0: You, any other effects currently from
1: no playing? no? Uh, I mean my neck is jacked up uh, My head is always tilted to, to the right or to the left Which I can't tell you which way when I'm looking in the mirror. It's like like it's to the right maybe it's to the left But I don't know but at the end of the day It's well, maybe that's up.
0: from the plan. Yeah, no,
1: well it is from the uh, from the from the hits to the head right and my neck is jacked up and so uh, That part outside of that it doesn't really give me a whole lot of issues uh, but uh, Outside of that, I'm doing pretty good.
0: I the, can't complain. The NFL uh, settled with the retired players for $765 million. That's money nothing. that's intended. That's nothing. What? That's nothing. Right, the money that's intended like, to cover the medical It's only like $20,000 a player.
1: $20,000 a player. That's nothing. I mean, no offense to somebody that they think $20,000 is a lot, but $20,000, you just go to the hospital one time, it's gone. That's how quick $20,000 can go. Heck, I got... Fifteen thousand dollars worth of, of repairment that I got to do to my house. Twenty thousand dollars gone, quick, quick. And what the issues that we all gonna be dealing with? It's gonna be worth. It's gonna cost a lot more than twenty thousand dollars.
0: And This was 2006 Dancing with the Stars yeah. champion, the third season of yeah. the show. That was pretty big deal.
1: It, it was a big deal. It was bigger than I realized. I mean, I didn't realize how how big entertainment space was, and, uh, and when you collide sports and entertainment together, it, it just accelerates, especially on the on the entertainment side.
0: How did that help your marketability?
1: Um, Visibility-wise, it broadened my base. Uh, people had, saw you without a helmet. Yeah, people saw me without a helmet. People got a chance to to see my personality, and not only to see my work ethic and and um, my competitive spirit. Uh, and um, uh, they saw me having fun. <laughs> they saw me having a good time out there dancing with Cheryl and, and, and learning to do something. They actually saw me step out of my own comfort zone right. and make myself very vulnerable and, uh, and saw Cheryl and I uh, come together as a team and, and have a good time. So what's your favorite dance move? Uh, you know, I mean, we d- the Latin dances were very cool to do, very cool to do, but I love doing the waltz. Uh, such a beautiful dance. Uh the tango has always been hard. But I enjoyed my last tango when we danced to Michael Jackson. I mean, I thought that was my best tango ever. But uh, you know, obviously they wanted me off the show and they kicked me off the show and then a lot of girls go ahead and win it. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you won no sex. That's all I was trying to win it back to <laughs> back, <laughs> you
0: know. <laughs> Have you figured out how to best use your celebrity in growing the, the business? Yeah. I, I yeah. Mean, best leverage. Yeah.
1: It? yeah, you know, but after that, the rubber meets the road on the
0: execution. Oh, right but uh, I mean, celebrity aspect may get you into the door. Right, I mean, so you have to use what you, you can to create the, can. right. I mean,
1: I, I'm not a pretty girl that wears, wears a nice little skirt or nothing like that, but
0: you know, I'm not too shabby. Right, <laughs> what, what have you learned about hiring um, as you slowly been building?
1: You know, one of the hardest thing about hiring is, like I told you once before.
0: Everybody's resume is everybody, amazing. Everybody's
1: resume is amazing, is amazing. No one writes on their resume That uh, I actually suck. (laughs) Right. (laughs) No one writes on their resume, Uh, I embezzle somebody's money. Right. Nobody writes on their resume. It's it's not as black and white as football statistics. No, it's not as black and white as football statistics. And and that's what I love about football because I can go to tape and watch you play. Right. And I watch you play. I know whether or not I'm getting a quality football player or a football player that has potential. All he needs is a little direction. Right. In business, you cannot do that because everything is on paper. And what people put on paper is not always the truth. And so it's their story, mm-hmm. but it's not their history. Right. See, with football, I can look at your history. And uh, that's that's the big difference. Uh, so you have to trust people a little bit more. And, and that's always a hard thing to do because people are looking for a job. Uh, some people are looking for a job to build a career. Some people are looking for a job to build a career to build a legacy. Yeah. And when you find the combination of the person that's looking for a career and a legacy, forget the job. Because when you're building a career and a legacy, it's never work. It's all play. Those are the folks I look for.
0: (laughs) Explain why Daryl Johnson uh, meant so much to you during your career. Because
1: Daryl Johnson to me was the unsung hero. Uh, The fullback position, uh, while today is, is pretty much extinct, Darrell Johnston, for me, was like Linus without his blanket. Um, I mean, he was the unsung hero because he would go in and do all the dirty grunt work that most people would not recognize. Uh, He didn't get a lot lot of notoriety for it, although Moose became a household name because of who he was as a person and what he meant to our offense and, 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 and what he did on the football field. Um, he would go in and uproot linebackers and had to go up against guys sometime that outweighed him by 10, 15, 20 pounds. And that's not an easy task to do. And you took my head on collisions and all those kind of things, that happened quite a bit for Darrell Johnston. I knew what he went through. And, and I know that it, was, it wasn't an easy task. So when he got one or two carries, I wasn't happy about it, but when he got one or two carries, so be it. Let him get his one, two carries. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's what they pay me for, Darryl, to run the football. <laughs> he understood that, but we would joke about it all the time. Um, he would tell you right now, I probably got mad when he carried the ball at least one time. He's he like, why you getting mad? You're getting 29 carries. He, he pretty much right. <laughs> why should I? But uh, but he, he made personal sacrifices, and, and, and I think the same way for a lot of players. Um Guys like Troy, myself, and Michael and others, we get a lot of attention. We get a lot of attention. And and I'm not gonna say rightfully so, but we play in some of the marquee positions. And uh, guys like Daryl Johnston and and many others, offensive linemen, don't always get their just due in terms of respect
0: from the world. Really a pleasure. Pleasure's all mine, brother. Good seeing you. Thanks for listening to the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger and visit grahambensinger.com for TV times in your area. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Bensinger for hours of extra content. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.